Section 27 of Claimants to Royalty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Claimants to Royalty by John H. Ingram. Chapter 27 The False Hercules de Este of Modena. A.D. 1747. In 1747, a young man of elegant appearance arrived at Rochelle in France. He was accompanied by an elderly person, who, from his studious care of his young companion, appeared to be his tutor. They took apartment in a quiet house, and furnished them in a moderate manner at their own expense. The avowed object of their visit to this French seaport was to procure a passage for the younger of the two, to some foreign port. But owing to the difficulty of evading the English cruisers, the two nations then being at war with each other, it was a long time before a vessel would put to sea. Ultimately, a passage was taken on board a small merchantman, bound for Martinique, and the youth and man prepared to embark. When leaving his apartments, the landlady inquired what was to be done with the furniture, and was told, with a gracious smile, by the younger of the twain, to keep it as a souvenir of him. The elderly personage then parted from his young companion, who embarked on board the West Indian merchantman, whither his reputation had apparently preceded him. Instinctively the captain and crew recognized the fact that they had an important personage on board, and therefore did all that they could to let him see they knew it. The elder man, who had taken a passage for the youth, had vouchsafed no further information to the captain than that his passenger was a person of distinction, whose friends would one day gratefully repay any attention paid to him. But that was sufficient to procure him every attention. At one time he was enabled to do the crew a service which certainly increased their respect for him. Alarmed by English cruisers, Nearly all the crew had taken to the shallop, and had hurried off so quickly that no provisions had been taken with them. Consequently, they were soon starving. The young passenger, however, purchased a quantity of refreshments from a native boat that came out to them, and shared it equally amongst all on board. They got back safely to their ship, but the youth was taken with an illness, during which he repaid their anxious inquiries and attentions more with a courteous hauteur than with gratitude. He appeared to shrink from all familiarity, but as it was necessary that he should have an attendant during his illness, he selected a young sailor of about his own age, named Rodez, who was respectably connected, and fairly well educated. Rodez, with whom the youthful stranger became somewhat more confiding than he had been with the others, stated that their passenger was Count de Tarnaud, son of a field-marshal. But this scarcely satisfied the inquisitive, who grew more mystified daily, as they beheld the great deference with which the confidant treated the interesting invalid. On arrival of Martinique, the port was found to be too strictly blockaded by the English cruisers to be entered, and to save themselves from capture, all had to take to the boats, and by abandoning their ship and cargo, 
contrived to land safely, but destitute. The supposed count did not appear much grieved at his misfortune, but attended by Rodez, at once put up at the best establishment he could discover. The attentions of his host, Farrell, he accepted as a matter of course, and behaved with such mysterious assumption of grandeur that the household at once put him down as a prince in disguise. Rodez could not, or would not, afford any further information than is already known, which it may be well imagined had been thoroughly circulated through the place by the Count's fellow-passengers. Rumours spread rapidly, and at last attained such dimensions that the commandant of the port thought it high time to make the mysterious stranger's personal acquaintance. He invited the Saudissant Count to his house, and his invitation was accepted. Attended by the youthful Rodez, the unknown removed to the commandant's dwelling, and by a certain incident at the very first meal he partook of there, contrived to impress his new host with an idea of his importance. On sitting down to dine, he found that he required a handkerchief, whereupon Rodez got up and brought him one. This surprised the company present, as at that time, as Rodez knew well, it was not only unusual, but even considered dishonorable, for one white man to wait upon another. Whilst everybody was in a state of perplexity at this incident, a note from Farrell was handed to the commandant, wherein it stated, "'You wish for information relative to the passenger, who lodged with me for some days.' His signature will furnish more than I am able to give. I enclose you a letter I have just received from him. This letter, written in a schoolboy hand and badly worded, contained a few words of thanks for Farrell's services, and was signed Este, and not Tarnot. Here was some mystery. All kinds of persons and books were consulted in order to solve the enigma, and at last, by means of an almanac, the useful stranger was identified as Hercules Renaud Este, hereditary prince of Modena, and brother of the Duchess de Pentivre. This discovery, which was substantiated by the testimony of two officers of somewhat shady reputation, but who were reputed to have seen the young prince in Europe, was quickly noised about, and the stranger's health was drunk to a full accompaniment of all his supposed titles. The soi de Saint Count appeared to be extremely annoyed at this discovery, having, so it seemed, signed the note with his real name inadvertently, and although he did not deny the rank imputed to him, the disclosure appeared to excite his haughty displeasure. After a time, becoming accustomed to the royal recognition of the people, the supposed prince interested himself warmly in the interests of the natives. Owing to the strict blockade maintained by the English, supplies from the neighboring islands became scarcer and dearer, and to make matters worse, had to be obtained through the intervention of certain monopolists, of whom the Marquis de Caelus, the governor of the Windward Islands himself, was the chief. The commandant at Martinique, who hated the Marquis, sided with the people in their murmurs, and sought to interest his princely guest in their complaints. The useful Sion of royalty declared himself indignant against the monopolists, 
and swore to put an end to their exactions, which, being duly reported, rendered him more popular than ever. News of all those things coming to the governor's ears, he began to grow uneasy, and, to judge for himself, invited the Count de Tournaud to visit him, but received for answer that although to the rest of the world the stranger might be the Count de Tournaud, to the Marquise de Caelos he was Hercules Renaud d'Este. "'If he desires to see me,' said His Highness, "'let him repair to Fort Royal, which is halfway, "'and in four or five days I shall be there.' At first the governor was so impressed by this imperative style, and the reports which his emissaries brought him, that he started for Fort Royal, but growing sceptical he retraced his steps.' Not finding him at the appointed place, the prince, attended by quite a retinue of gentlemen, proceeded to Fort Saint-Pierre, where the governor beheld him from a window, and exclaiming that he was the exact image of his royal mother and sister, left the place in a panic, and repaired to Fort Royal. After this, his highness threw off all further reserve, assumed the honours of his position, appointed a household and a suit of attendants, and accepted, without reserve, the generous hospitality of the inhabitants. As might be expected from his youth and exalted birth, he never denied himself the gratification of a whim, and joined in all the maddening dissipation of the place. One remarkable thing was noticed, and that was, that whatever frolic or excess he joined in, he never forgot his dignity of prince, and so continued to command the respect of his companions. At first he must have suffered much inconvenience from the fact that although hospitably entertained from the moment of his arrival, he had landed in the island without a coin in his pocket, but his good fortune soon remedied this defect. The Duke de Penthievre had a large property of the island, and his agent, hearing of the awkward position in which the young prince, his employer's brother-in-law, was placed, very friendly, put the funds in hand at his disposal. His Highness graciously accepted this useful offer, and henceforward was enabled to pay his way with royal regularity. During this period of almost absolute power, the prince had written home to his family, whilst the Marquise de Caelos sent a special messenger to Europe to detail what had happened and to ask for instructions. Meanwhile, peace was proclaimed, the blockade raised, and prices returned to their normal condition. By this time, the useful visitor, having contrived to spend 50,000 crowns of the Pentier funds, and strain the hospitality of the islanders to its extreme limits, deemed it time to depart. Accordingly, attended by all his household and the royal physician, he hoisted an admiral's flag on board a merchant vessel, and under a royal salute from the fort, set sail for Portugal. Scarcely had their expensive guests departed, before a courier arrived with an order for the stranger's arrest, whilst the agent of the Pentier family learned, to his dismay, that he would be expected, for his want of caution, to make good half of what he had allowed the soi-disant prince to cheat him out of. Meanwhile, 
the young adventurer arrived at Ferro in Portugal, and landed amid an artillery salute. He requested a courier could, should be sent at once to Madrid, as also conveyance for himself and suit to Seville. Everything was placed at his disposal, and on his arrival at the latter city, which he entered in triumphant-like style, he began a life of festivity similar to that he had carried on in the West Indies. Still provided with funds, he entertained right royally all those who fetted him in return, and speedily won the admiration of the women and the envy of the men. In the midst of all this festivity, an order arrived for the prince's arrest. He was lodging with the Dominicans, who after a time, despite the indignation of the populace, agreed to give him up, provided no blood were shed. At first the officers found it difficult to execute this agreement. The youth, who was a good swordsman, making it a dangerous task to approach him. But ultimately he was secured by stratagem, and thrown into a dungeon. The following day, for some inexplicable reason, he was released from his fetters, and placed in the best apartment the prison afforded, the prince, who haughtily refused to answer any questions, was finally condemned to the galleys, and his retinue, upon a charge of a suppositious nature, were expelled the Spanish dominions. Upon the prisoner's removal to Cadiz, great military precautions were taken, as it was feared a riot on his behalf might be made. On arrival at Cadiz, he was consigned to Fort de la Caragna, and the commandant was instructed to treat him, the convict, with politeness. Being allowed liberties not often granted to prisoners, he availed himself of an opportunity to escape, and got on board an English vessel. On arrival at Gibraltar, the captain reported to the governor that he had on board a personage, claiming to be the prince of Modena. "'Let him beware of landing,' responded the governor, for I shall have him apprehended immediately. The bewildered captain informed his highness of the reply, and his passenger, warned by the past, remained on board. The vessel departed with this climate to royalty, of whose further proceedings history makes no mention. End of chapter 27